Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. A look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com. Hello and welcome. I'm Walt McCree, Ellen's co-host and colleague at the Public Banking Institute, and today we offer a special full feature of a conversation with Ellen and the renowned economist, author, and polymath, our friend Michael Hudson. Michael's views on economics and the history that shapes our understanding of them sheds unique light on many of our assumptions about money and the money systems we depend on. Besides condemning the traditional academy of economists for being oblivious to history and the real workings of money, Michael suggests, with tongue-in-cheek, that we're stuck, short of an armed revolution, to reclaim the monetary power from an oligarchy that has been amassing vast anti-democratic wealth for centuries and shows no signs of stopping. So let's get right into this discussion with Ellen Brown and Michael Hudson. My guest today is Dr. Michael Hudson, who is a Wall Street financial analyst, professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and author of over two dozen books. We're also delighted to have him on our Public Banking Institute advisory board. Paul Craig Roberts, who was former assistant treasury secretary under Reagan, called Michael the greatest economist on the planet. (laughs) Quite an endorsement. Um, his latest production is a third updated edition of his blockbuster book, Super Imperialism Rules, or oh, sorry, How America Rules the World. Uh, it's great to be speaking to you again, Michael. It's good to be here. We always have a good discussion. <laughs> so one thing among many that you're an expert in is um, debt and this mountain of debt that is likely to take down our economy and the whole global economy the way it's going. It's and I particularly appreciated your book, um, um, and forgive them their debts, where you explored the origin, like the historical origins of our credit system, going all the way back to the Sumerians and the Babylonians, and they managed to maintain a stable economic system for over a millennium uh, using a technique that. Uh, that you explored there and that we would like to be able to uh, use now. But could, so could you give us some of that background and talk about whether we, why we can't do it today or whether we can? Well, basically the Sumerians and Babylonians had what uh, uh, George Friedrich Knopf called the state theory of money uh, a century ago. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm uh, in about three months, I'm republishing all of my uh, academic articles on the origins of money and uh, of land tenure and of uh, fiscal policy uh, uh, in a collection, Temples of Enterprise. And my basic point is uh, something that is pretty close to what you're saying in the sense that money wasn't created by barter. 
It wasn't created by individuals. It was created by the temples and palaces of Babylonia. Initially, they needed uh, to have some uh, way of account keeping. They needed a measure of value. They needed uh, they, uh, to uh, measure how much grain was coming in, how much grain did they have to provide to their uh, workforce in the, uh, in the temples and the workshops, how much wool did they need, and uh, how much uh, were they able to uh, sell this for, uh, for silver abroad. So what they needed was uh, some means of uh, keeping all of these accounts in a common denominator. Uh, you never had this in the West. You didn't have this in Linear B uh, writing for Greece in the 1600 to 1200 BC. But the Sumerians had a simple solution. They created money essentially as a means of fiscal management. They, uh, they created a grain standard measured into bushels, and uh, they created, that was uh, dovetailed into a silver standard with one shekel of silver, equaling one bushel of grain, so you can keep accounts in a common denominator. And this required the first real prices to be uh, administered. And they were administered prices, uh, and yet there was a mixed economy. There was a private sector outside of the temples and palaces, and uh, grain prices could go up and down according to whether there was just a harvest, whether there was a shortage. Uh, but uh, the price of grain and uh, uh, silver were kept stable for payment of uh, taxes uh, and fees uh, and advances of, uh, to the government uh, during the year so that you wouldn't have inflation or uh, different uh, 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 price uh, differences disturbing things. So here's how the economy worked. Uh, and if, if you went to, uh, you're a Sumerian, or Babylonian, and you went to the ale house during the year and you had ale, uh, you'd do what uh, Americans would do when they go to a bar often. You'd put it on the tab to be paid at payday. So uh, during the year, the crop year, the Babylonians would go to the ale house, they'd mark down what they had, and payday came when the crop was in, on the threshing floor. And so uh, grain was, pay was measured out on the threshing floor, and paid by the uh, uh, by the uh, people who went to the bar to the ale lady, and then the ale lady would take some of this uh, grain, and uh, she would pay the palace or the temple that advanced the uh, 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 the money uh, to the alehouse. This has uh, occurred not only in uh, Sumer, uh, in Babylonia. It occurred, say, in Japan in the 17th century. Uh, the temples uh, they had sake, not ale. Uh, and the temples produced the sake. And uh, uh, every once in a while, there'd be a crop failure. People couldn't pay. Uh, but in Japan, the temples would say, hey, you, the crops failed. You owe us the debt for all the sake you've had. Uh, we're going to foreclose and lose the land. And so there were uprisings and debts were canceled. Well, in Sumer and Babylonia, when uh, money was first created, you didn't need an uprising. Uh, the ruler said, uh, well, we understand that uh, if the crops fail after you've run up these uh, debts that you're supposed to pay on the threshing floor, we're, uh, we're just going to, you, you can't pay, and we don't want you to fall into bondage to our collectors who've uh, in charge of who've paid your tax uh, themselves. 
you're not going to lose your land. You're not going to lose anything. We're just going to wipe out uh, the uh, agrarian debts uh, when there's a crisis. Same thing with uh, business laws, all the way from Sumer down through Greece and Rome. Uh, there was for 3,000 years, if uh, investors in a commercial loan uh, would lend to a, uh, a ship captain or a caravan leader, but if the caravan were robbed or if the ship sank, then they wouldn't have to pay the creditor. That was written off. So uh, at the time that you first have money created, it was created basically to pay the temples and the palaces that advanced the goods and services to the, uh, uh, the private sector, uh, to the economy at large. And uh, the, uh, the debts couldn't be paid because the government was basically the, a creditor not a uh, debtor as it is today, uh, the government would say, okay, uh, the credits can't be paid. What we want is stability. We're going to uh, uh, wipe off the debts to begin next year with a clean slate, and we can all begin again in balance. So you had money creation as a government, uh, essentially by the government. Uh, all of the money was, uh, uh, the silver was uh, created by the temples. Well, uh, all of this was pretty well understood, but the, around the 19th century, uh, you began to have uh, a socialist movement and uh, uh, industrial capitalists were evolving into socialists. And they said, look, uh, we can't de uh, depend on uh, the current kind of banks we have. These are predatory banks. Uh, they're not, uh, they don't lend for industrial development. They don't lend to help, lend to help the economy. They, they lend basically to grab assets. Uh, and uh, we need banks that are actually going to uh, uh, make loans to industry. And we need the government itself to provide the funding for industry and governments to uh, run deficits so that they can spend to, on building basic infrastructure so that we can uh, uh, provide low-cost uh, transportation and education and health care so that our industry can compete with other countries. That was a doctrine of Germany, Central Europe. France, uh, and the United States. Well, can, I, can I stop you for a second? Could you yeah. define industrial capitalism? Uh, essentially, industrial capitalism was the idea that uh, uh, in order to uh, have a, a manufacturing industry uh, that would be a com uh, competitive uh, and uh, in world markets, you had to undersell other industrial producers. Industrial capitalism was uh, an attempt basically to free economies from the legacy of feudalism. And industrial capitalism is radical, uh, from the physiocrats to Adam Smith to uh, John Stuart Mill uh, to the socialists. The whole 19th century value theory, uh, which was the doctrine of industrial capitalism, said uh, we don't need a landlord class that landlords uh, increase the cost of production. And if we have a landlord class and if we have predatory bankers taking uh, as much money as they can in land rent and in, uh, uh, in interest, then we're never going to be able to uh, afford to undersell other industrial producers. And we're just going to lose out and become what today is called a third world country. So industrial capitalism was a doctrine of freeing economies from the legacy of feudalism, uh, uh, getting rid of landlords and uh, getting uh, re and replacing the kind of predatory medieval banking that you had uh, that wasn't a, a very nice banking with uh, productive banking. 
productive credit and with government credit uh, that would uh, basically promote prosperity for the country rather than uh, letting uh, landlords and uh, uh, bankers take all, all the money that they could in rent and interest. And that was why they developed value theory. Value theory, a cost value was what's the, what is the necessary cost of production? Well, it's labor and it's uh, the capital goods that you need. Uh, but land rent isn't the cost of production necessary. Uh, payment of interest isn't really a necessary cost of production. If it's a public utility, the government can provide money as a public utility. That uh, ended up with uh, uh, Knopf's state theory of money. And uh, uh, it turned out that uh, this was how money and uh, uh, prosperity was first developed around uh, three th- uh, in the third millennium and second millennium B.C. Well, as you can imagine, the bankers didn't like this. And the bankers said, no, no, uh, 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 the government and the palaces and the temples didn't play any role at all in the creation of money. Uh, it was just individuals were bartered. And they decided that uh, what, uh, some individuals liked uh, uh, metal, because metal doesn't uh, wear. You can't go uh, wear away. Uh, it's standardized. Uh, it's uh, easy. It's small and compact. Uh, and you can't imagine going around pulling grain out of your pocket to pay for some uh, uh, seedy grain every time uh, you got uh, a, uh, a beer or ale. Well, this is uh, what they didn't say was, well, okay, people wanted to save in silver. Where, who made the, where did the silver come from? How do we avoid uh, uh, counterfeiting? How do we avoid impurity? Who refined the silver? And how do you measure it? Well, throughout all of antiquity, uh, from Sumer, Babylonia, down to Greece and Rome, all the money was always made in the temples. That's why the word money comes from uh, the temple of Juno Moneta uh, in Rome, where uh, uh, the coins were uh, uh, were struck uh, to finance uh, Rome's war spending. So it was the it was the temples that were in charge of refining the silver and also overseeing the weights and measures. And when money was developed, it was really developed uh, as a uh, part of the weights and measure system. If, if you're going to manage a specialized economy. Uh, with uh, uh, workshops for uh, specialized labor, and the labor were mainly war widows and war and uh, war orphans and uh, a few slaves uh, uh, in Sumer and uh, Babylonia. Well, then you're going to have to have uh, some means of uh, organizing this. Well, the uh, the anti-government people in the 19th century, which are even today are the monetary mainstream, the mainstream of what you learn if you. Uh, have the misfortune to study economics in the universities. They said, "No, no, the uh, uh, you just uh, trade trade for metal." Uh, and they, they said there must have been some uh, uh, Milton, some uh, oh dear, the, the, the central banker who uh, was such a disaster who said, uh, "Nobody would. Uh, why would anybody cheat other people? They will lose their reputations." Alan Greenspan. Uh, uh, he said, nobody could have cheated in antiquity because you'd lose your reputation. Well, uh, obviously that wasn't the case because all through the Bible, there are denunciations of crooked merchants using false weights and measures, uh, uh, adulterating coinage uh, and all of that. So a kind of fake uh, origin myth of money and credit was developed 
in which uh, government played no role at all. And playing no role at all, uh, it, it didn't play a role in uh, uh, canceling debts. And in this uh, fake origin myth, uh, the role of early governments uh, was to protect creditors. And uh, probably uh, you have a whole, it's almost a neo-fascist uh, uh, origin myth that's promoted by Douglas North uh, that is based on, he calls himself the new institutional uh, economics. And uh, that means that economics without institutions, uh, without uh, any public institutions. The institutions are all uh, your friendly neighborhood banker uh, and landlord and uh, monopolist. And he said, uh, civilization took off when you begin cutting uh, transaction costs. And you begin by cutting transaction costs by you're not going to protect debtors. Protecting debtors is a transaction cost. Let the creditors uh, simply have security of, grant, of, of uh, contract so that they can enslave uh, the debtor, so that they can take their land away, so that they can concentrate all the land in their own hand, just like Romans, Rome's oligarchy did. Uh, and uh, you have this, this travesty of economic history by the uh, uh, by the mainstream, immediately uh, the bankers uh, and the Chicago School that run the Nobel Prize Committee gave the Nobel Prize to Douglas North saying, this is wonderful, minimize transaction costs. What's the biggest transaction cost? Government regulation, getting out of the way. What's an even worse transaction cost? It's government money creation and credit creation that uh, really interferes with our private uh, uh, money creation. And uh, the government would even today interfere with collecting student debt, uh, uh, interfering with the uh, the ability of creditors to have the easy transaction of uh, making sure that the student debtors won't have enough money to buy a home or have a life of their own and have to live in penury. So uh, you have this this whole kind of uh, presentation of uh, a so-called natural theory of money that goes all the way back to the Stone Age, just uh, ending up in uh, today's right-wing, uh, creditor-oriented uh, opposition to any government money creation, any government protection of creditors, any thought that the long-term interest should take priority over short-term asset grabbing and short-term uh, uh, regulation. Regulation is considered to be a transaction cost. Uh, uh, usury laws are a transaction cost. They interfere with the free market forces of the ability to cheat people. Uh, this is, uh, so basically I'm uh, I, I found that archaeologists, Assyriologists, uh, Egyptologists, they, for decades, they haven't even been willing to speak to economists because they realize that economists have tried to barge in to uh, anthropology and to archaeology uh, to pretend that there's this uh, modern uh, right-wing uh, monetary theory and practice that uh, would have prevented civilization ever from developing in the first place if it really would have uh, happened the way uh, uh, the textbooks say. And these are the uh, theories that uh, are taught to economic students as if, well, this is how the Stone Age did it. it uh, all of this uh, attempt at government, socialism, social democratic uh, protection of uh, debtors, all of this is just a, a long detour. Uh, let's go back to the beginning like uh as things were in the Stone Age. And of course, the result of all this is going to be the same as it was in Rome, 
to bring about a dark age. Yeah. Um, so the, um, about the debt jubilees, which is what you need to do when debt accumulates, right? Uh, can we do that now? And if we could, how would we do it? And could we do it with student debt? I think you've addressed well, those questions before. <laughs> there's a basic principle behind it, a jubilee. Uh, and that is that, uh, what are you going to do when debts are unable to be paid? If you look at all the monetary textbooks, they say, well, the creditor lends money to the, lends uh, cattle or uh, uh, seed to uh, a farmer, uh, and uh, the farmer uh, makes a surplus and pays out of the uh, balance. But the problem is that almost for all economies, uh, debts grow faster than the economy. The Babylonians actually had a economic model that is more sophisticated mathematically than any model that's uh, used today by the IMF or others. And the model is very simple. On the one, there, there are two graph, two lines. One is the compound growth of interest. It's exponential. Uh, a equals x squared. Uh, this and there's a model of the growth of the real economy, like a herd of cattle, and that's an S curve. Oops, like tapering off. And now, obviously, the exponential growth of debt accumulating is faster than the S-curve. The Babylonian scribes were actually taught these mathematical models. We have the textbooks. They were all published in the 1930s, uh, uh, mainly by a French uh, uh, Assyriologist. Uh, and they realized that, well, when you're going to have uh, debts that can't be paid, you have a, the, uh, the ruler has a choice. Is he going to let the debtors who can't pay fall into bondage, lose their assets, become impoverished, and uh, uh, essentially have to emigrate to get free of debt or run away, run away? And that was a frequent problem in antiquity. Uh, or are we going to say, okay, uh, we're not going to uh, sacrifice the whole economy and uh, uh, let you fall into uh, poverty uh, like an IMF austerity program, uh, just because uh, the creditors want to take all of your uh, property and your uh, uh, your income uh, uh, and your money. So uh, the the idea was that uh, in order for uh, an economy to keep growing, you had to have uh, the stability of people being able to break even without running uh, into debt. So that logic was why. We mentioned industrial capitalism. The industrial capitalism of the 19th century uh, didn't try to uh, make labor pay for its education. There was free education. It didn't pay make labor pay for health care. There was public health care. That was the basic uh, conservative policy of Britain's uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli. Uh, you would have the government subsidizing uh, public infrastructure, uh, everything from transportation, water and sewer. Uh, if you would have uh, privatized uh, all of these uh, uh, these basic human needs, then labor would have had to pay the price for it. And uh, it, uh, employers could not have afforded to pay their employees enough money to cover all of this uh, uh, and compete abroad. The employees could have would have had to go deeply into debt uh, if they would have got their existing wage levels. Uh, and if they would have got deeply into debt, ultimately, uh, they never would have been able to become a home market. They wouldn't have been able to uh, buy houses of their own. Uh, uh, you would have 
uh, essentially the creditors uh, becoming just like the medieval landlords, uh, owning owning all of the assets in society, controlling the income, and uh, reducing the rest of the population essentially to debt peonage. Well, if you want to avoid debt peonage, if you don't want your country to look like the victim of an IMF austerity program, then you have to write down the debts. Uh, take the student debts, for instance, that you and I have spoken about before. Uh, if you want these uh, stu- students who owe hundreds of thousands of dollars, many of whom don't have a job, uh, or they may own owe $50,000 because they went to a for-profit technical school that didn't teach them anything and they can't pay. If you don't want, if you want these uh, graduate students to be able to afford to uh, do what you and I could do when we were young, get a job that will enable you to buy your own home and uh, rise into the middle class and uh, uh, survive in a, a well, then you've got to write down the student debts. These debts uh, originally should have been uh, provided, uh, education should have been provided freely. There shouldn't have been any uh, student debt at all. It should have been a, a subsidized, just like uh, water, uh, uh, clean water is subsidized, just like healthcare is subsidized in other countries. Uh, that's not the way it was done here. So somehow the, uh, by privatizing education, healthcare, driving people bankruptcy if you have to go into a hospital, uh, all of this privatization has made the United States so high cost an economy that it can't compete. Uh, with other economies, and uh, the economies doing just what uh, happened in Rome. It's polarizing between creditors at the top and de- uh, the 1% and uh, debtors, the 99% uh, at, at the bottom. Well, what do you do? There are a number of proposals. Some people say, well, maybe the government can just print the money and pay, the ba- pay, pay off all the uh, student loans by uh, paying uh, the banks, paying the creditors, uh, paying the, uh, uh, the homeowners that, uh, can't afford to pay their rent because of the, uh, uh, or mortgage because of the uh, pandemic. Uh, but then what you're going to do is the government will create money just to pay the 1% to make it whole. Uh, but that doesn't really uh, help the homeowners. So the, the problem is, well, uh, a parallel to the student debt is the real estate debt that you're having here in New York. Uh, there are 200,000 families uh, that are subject to eviction here in New York because uh, there was a moratorium on uh, rental payments and on mortgage payments during the pandemic uh, from, uh, uh, I think, 2020. Well, what are you going to do now that the eviction moratorium expires in another month or so? If Are you going to throw all of these uh, uh, homeowners uh, and renters into the streets and make them sleep on the subways? Uh, what are you going to do? Uh, obviously, uh, in, in Babylonia, we have the laws of Hammurabi saying around 1750 BC what he would do. Uh, Hammurabi said if not only if the crops fail, but if there's a disease, if people get sick, the debts don't have to be paid. Because if we have uh, a, a pandemic, uh, then, uh, and uh, you try to collect the debts, you're going to impoverish anyone. The amazing thing is, here we have 4,000 years ago, 
and they were more socially in advance than we were we are uh, today by saying, well, throw them all out. Well, uh, I think on uh, your recent uh, posting, uh, uh, your article that you put up, you uh, discussed the uh, 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 the Swiss uh, World Economic Forum uh, uh, suggestion that uh, somehow uh, you should create, uh, you know, a huge bank to monetize all of this, uh, to somehow make the creditors whole. And uh, all of this is uh, a huge grab by the 1% to grab control of the monetary system, basically for itself, uh, although operating through the Federal Reserve, just like uh, the uh, uh, the banking and the creditor system works through the Federal Reserve today, uh, the opposite of uh, the state theory of money, the opposite of uh, uh, economies that are going way ahead of us, like China, that has kept uh, banking and uh, money creation in the public sector's hands. So you're really having uh, uh, a civilizational opposition between uh, what Rosa Luxemburg called socialism or barbarism. Either you're going to have the creditors taking over and the debtors falling further and further behind until everyone ends up like a student debtor that can't pay the loan or a uh, uh, rental tenant or homeowner that uh, uh, is out of work and fell behind in the payments and is going to be evicted. Uh, what kind of economy do you want? Yeah, so, but how do we reverse that now? Uh, I know President Biden thinks that he doesn't have the power to just forgive the, or of course, not all student debt even is federal, but I think it's uh, $1.75 trillion worth of student debt outstanding is federal. So can they just write that off? And of course he could. Uh, he, he doesn't want to. He, it was, it was Biden. Who inter, who, Biden's on the far right of the political spectrum. Uh, it was he who, as you know, uh, wrote, wrote, uh, the, into the bankruptcy law, student debts cannot be wiped out by bankruptcy. That means that if a student debtor can't pay, they have to go into penury for their entire life. They can't say, we can't pay, so the debt's a bad loan. The fact is that the banks have made these loans and the government that made this, that extended these loans, most student debts, as you said, now are government, uh, the government's hold them, but the government made bad loans, predatory loans, loans that were designed to finance the big universities, not finance the students. Uh, they were, uh, essentially, they, they were low, made the students to pay enormous increases in tuition to the big universities that are basically real estate companies that hold uh, classes in some of their real estate to get tax exemption on the rest of their real estate, like Columbia University and NYU and New York that are the, the big real estate owners in the, uh, in the city. Uh, essentially, these were bad loans. Well, bad loans should be written off. And uh, the umbrella logic for wiping out student debt is these are bad loans and bad, a bad debt means a bad loan. Bad loans should be written down. If they're behind, you write them off. Now, some people will say, gee, some people have already gone to the effort of paying their student debts. Well, good for them. They were able to, but most people can't. And if you keep the student debt on the book, which of course can be written off by the same way that uh, Obama kept doing, writing uh, uh, presidential, uh, I forget, whatever they're called, presidential findings, 
uh, or notes. Uh, he could just say, I, I'm, this is my ruling. Uh, maybe later you can uh, uh, dispute it, but I'm wipe- my ruling is we're wiping off the debt now. Or he could uh, have uh, the Democratic Party put it to a vote. Uh, as Bernie Sanders would say, make everybody vote on whether the uh, Senate wants to uh, write down uh, uh, student debts and let uh, people who disagree with it, uh, let it be very clear who they are so that they can be voted out of power. Uh, well, they did have the Fed buy mortgage-backed securities in 2008, 2009, bailed out the banks by moving them onto the books of the Federal Reserve, right? But then the yeah. Fed kept collecting on these mortgage mortgages, uh, but they could do that with student debt, I would think, and just rip it up or not not collect for a while. And it seems to me you could do that with the federal debt, too, because it really would be owed to ourselves. So what's the point of paying interest to ourselves, which then goes back to the Treasury? Just rip it up. The debt is the money supply. Well, that yeah, that that's a trick language there because when you say pay the pay the debt to ourselves, the ourselves are the ninety are the one percent. Most of the uh, the government. No, but I'm I'm thinking of the federal debt. If if the Fed bought the federal debt, it really would be the federal government owing it to itself. So what's the point of holding it on the books of the Fed? Yeah. Right. So I mean, this could be solved uh, technically by bookkeeping, but uh, if that the very discussion of what we're talking about has been thwarted by this false view of how money and interest-bearing debt was created in the first place. And uh, Assyriologists have been making it very clear for the last uh, 30 years. And so that's why I'm publishing all these articles uh, tracing the origins. So you see, wait a minute, there's a, a, a the way that money and credit and uh, land tenure uh, and uh, whether governments are going to support the interest of creditors or uh, debtors uh, goes way back in history. And the the uh, societies that survived well protected debtors from the creditors. The societies that collapsed into a dark age, like Rome, uh, were societies that gave, uh, uh, let the creditors write all the rules and uh, impoverish and uh, uh, reduce the debtors to serfdom. So history really shows that choice. Either you're going to have a free economy, meaning an economy free of debt and also free of economic rent and unearned income, or you're going to have uh, a predatory economy, uh, which is called a free market economy, meaning uh, we don't have any protection for uh, consumers or debtors or uh, uh, the population uh, at large. Uh, it's free for predators. Uh, and that... Uh, that choice is not taught in uh, uh, economics departments, but it's the central choice for governments uh, from uh, Europe and Asia. They're discussing whose model do we want to follow? Do we want to follow the Chinese model that's very successful and uh, uh, is uh, kept money in banking and uh, public hands and avoided poverty and, in fact, pulled the population out of poverty? Or do we want to follow the U.S. model that's impoverishing what used to be a prosperous uh, population? Which model are you going to follow? So can you talk a bit about what the Chinese do with debt? I know they carried it on their books for a long time, but now we've got this Evergrande issue and these empty apartments and so forth. Well, the Chinese basically have created uh, uh, credit in order to enable uh, factories to be built and real estate to be built. 
And uh, in the past, when uh, uh, when a factory, for whatever reason, there could be a supply chain, there could be a problem. When uh, a, a large factory or a means of production uh, couldn't pay, the government had a choice. Are we going to close? The, are we going to foreclose and just say, okay, you can't pay, you're closed down, we're going to sell off your property uh, to whoever has the money to buy it, or do we really want to keep you in business because you're essential, you're part of our growth plan? So what they do is uh, if the debt can't be paid, gee, we've made a bad loan, bad us, we're going to write down the debt so it can be paid because the ideal of the Chinese government is to keep existing uh, uh, businesses in business, not close them down. Uh, And you're not going to say take a factory, all of a sudden it couldn't get some input because uh, there are sanctions against it. And so we're going to close it down and let Landlords uh, take it over and turn it into gentrified property so that China ends up looking like lower Manhattan uh, with all of the uh, loft, uh, expensive lofts uh, uh, for uh, renters for what used to be an industrial, uh, uh, industrial buildings. Uh, the choices that you can write down the debt in order to keep the economy solvent. The idea is to keep the economy solvent. Now, obviously with Evergrande, they have a choice. They they could have simply said, oh, you couldn't pay the debt. You default. Okay, uh, you default, then uh, your investors are going to lose money, uh, but we're going to lose money uh, in the government, but, you know, that's okay. Uh, the investors shouldn't have uh, uh, bought you, uh, uh, made the loans to you or bought your stock, And uh, but we're going to make sure that somebody, we're going to create enough credit so that somebody can uh, finish the buildings you begin to uh, uh, to create. We're going to make sure that the uh, the Chinese uh, home buyers who've already prepaid for apartments that weren't paid, we're going to put uh, these uh, buyers first. We're not going to put the bondholders first. We're not going to put the uh, billionaires first. We're going to put the individual families and the suppliers uh, that uh, have advanced you the money. We're going to put the small uh, creditors first, not the big creditors. Uh, and if we wipe out debts, we're going to make sure that we make uh, the small uh, small creditors whole. Uh, that's protecting the 99%. It's protecting the base so that the economy does not suffer a major disruption. Uh, so no matter, even if we wrote off the debts, you're still going to have these trillions of dollars at the top and, you know, very poor people at the bottom. So I saw somewhere where you didn't think uh, uh, taxing the rich would work, but it does, Roosevelt did it, raised the, inter, raised the tax rate, to, the top tax rate to 94% or whatever. What do you think about that for an idea? Uh, obviously, you need progressive taxation, but uh, I think you really want to tax the right thing. Uh, the 19th century was very clear, classical economists, saying you don't want the tax to fall on labor. You don't want it to be a sales tax. You don't want it to be an income tax of normal middle-class people. You want the income tax uh, to fall to collect basically the economic rent. You want the taxes to fall on the 1%, uh, not the 99%. And America's first income tax, as I'm sure you know, uh, only uh, the top 1% had to pay it because the top 1% were the big bankers. They were the Wall Street speculators. They were the trust builders. They were the monopolists. 
they were the uh, uh, the creditors. Uh, they were the ones who had to pay, not the uh, population at large. And so that left the American economy to be very competitive because the bottom 99% were free of an income tax, didn't have that many sales taxes, and could afford to be uh, low-priced uh, labor to their employers. And that enabled America to undersell Europe and to undersell the whole rest of the world when it was still on an industrial uh, economic path. And what about a land value tax? I've seen that you've... I'm all in favor of it because uh, uh, when land prices go up, they're not created by the landlords. Uh, what uh, Land land uh, rents go up because uh, a of the rent of location. A house is in a positive neighborhood, uh, or there's more more prosperity. The landlords just, uh, as John Stuart Mill said, make uh, price gains and rent in their sleep. So the idea is that the, the uh, land rent, monopoly rent, and also financial rents, interest, all of this should be the tax base. And if it not, you know, either it should be the tax base if it's in uh, uh, private hands, or these should be public utilities. That land should be a public utility. Uh, and the government should receive uh, the rent. Uh, and credit in China is a public utility. So uh, in China, when uh, the Chinese pay uh, interest on uh, uh, their uh, borrowings, whether it's business or a private person, the government receives the rent, not the in- independent financial class that gets richer and richer and then tries to take over government for itself, which is what financial classes do. Uh, when they get uh, wealthy enough uh, uh, to make such an attempt. Uh, and this is something that I've just been teasing my own brain with, but um, <laughs> I remember. Uh, so it seems to me that the Federal Reserve obviously bailed out Wall Street after 2008-2009. They should be able to bail out Main Street. I mean, we've worked for 10 years trying to get public banks set up, and it's obvious to me that we need a source of liquidity. I know there's this whole movement and the Fed, but you know that's not going to happen. The Fed's not going anywhere. But we, but there needs to be some way that we can turn that liquidity into Main Street, into small businesses. And so do you have any ideas on that? Uh, what you're advocating is violent revolution. You don't, oh. there's <laughs> no way, there, uh, the Federal Reserve was created to serve the banks against the people. The Federal Reserve was uh, designed to replace the Treasury, to take money control out of the Treasury and uh, break it up into 12 local uh, districts, each of uh, mainly New York, that would be dominated by the bankers. The Federal Reserve was meant to take economic policy out of the hands of Washington and put it in the hands of Wall Street. That's the Fed's role. The Fed is not going to support the 99%. The Fed is there to support the 1%, uh, and, uh, is not going to change. And now that the, it, now that the Fed has done such a great job in the since 1914 in supporting the 1%, the 1% have been wealthy enough to take over the government. So even though the government, uh, uh names the head of the Federal Reserve, the government's taken over by the Federal, by the financial sector also. So uh, I don't believe uh, democracy has not been a very efficient way of uh, taking uh, monetary power out of the hands of banks and putting it in the hands of 
the government to use monetary policy in the public interest. That's the problem. The, the, uh, it took a revolution in China and a pretty blood, bloody revolution to do that. I don't see a revolution coming in the United States, but there is no way in possible that you can reform either the Federal Reserve or uh, the IMF, which is a, a branch of the uh, Defense Department and the military industrial complex. Uh, uh, basically, the job of the IMF is to make loans to uh, third world oligarchies uh, and debt governments and force governments to privatize and sell off the public domain to uh, U.S. and allied uh, foreign uh, uh, privatizers. It's uh, to impose austerity on the rest of the world. So uh, just as the role of the Federal Reserve is to impose austerity on the U.S. population, the IMS role is to impose austerity on the rest of the world's population. Uh, you're not going to do this. Uh, these are not reformable institutions. So you, you'd have to start all over with a new institution. And the only, I don't see how you can do that, uh, in a democracy because, uh, democracies, as Aristotle said, uh, turn into oligarchies pretty quickly. And, uh, oligarchies, uh, are, they make themselves into hereditary aristocracies, which is what's happening in America today. And uh, at the end of that road, you have Rome and uh, a new dark age. Um, well, but it seems to me, I mean, like this whole great reset idea, the reason they need a reset, they do resets every 30 years or so because the money system collapses. And so yeah. they have to do, it's the equivalent of a clean slate, but what they do is they let it all collapse and then they put in some other system. So we need another system and we don't want the great reset that's planned by the World Economic Forum because these are the private creditors that you're talking about, the big private businesses. They're not us and there's no, the democracy is not (laughs) in that system. So it seems to me that we have to come up with an alternative that will work and have it ready to go and say, no, no, we can do it this way. So what do you recommend? (laughs) How are we going to fix this mess? You stated it absolutely correctly. We do need a new system, but who's going to design it? Uh, you don't want to leave it to the World Economic Forum, uh, because like the World Wrestling Forum, it's sort of controlled in a very centralized, uh, uh, position and its aims are not, uh, 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 they're not going to make the reset, uh, in the interests of the 99%. They're going to say, don't let this crisis go to waste. Here's our chance for a power grab. Here's our chance to bring about, to restore feudalism. We can roll back society for 2,000 years. We can get back in the Roman Empire. We can have feudalism again. That's our reset. And that's the, the reset that the financial sector and the 1% would, would love. So the way, the only way that we can create an alternative is number one, to say there's a long historical experience for 5,000 years of uh, how money and debt have taken place. And we know uh, what kind of monetary management and uh, public management uh, succeeds. And it's a management where the rulers of Sumer, Babylonia, all the Bronze Age rulers uh, kept the financial sector in check by uh, promoting social uh, stability. But uh, once you had civilization move uh, to Greece and Rome and the West, the West didn't have any kings, or at least not divine kings. You didn't have any kings who canceled the debts. Uh, you had uh, century after century of the revolts in Rome and Greece urging debt cancellation, 
but they didn't work. They, they all failed. And uh, so you can show that if you fail to uh, reform the monetary system in a way that uh, preserves economic growth, you're going to get poor and poor and fall into feudalism. And so uh, I guess a combination of studying anthropology and economic history on the one hand, and then looking at why is China able to succeed so much better than uh, the, the U.S. economy and the Europe? Why, why is, what is it doing right? And it turns out that what it's doing is exactly what Germany and the United States and England and France did in the 19th century. They, uh, they're following the, the logic of uh, uh, industrial capitalism in uh, building up a domestic market. And the idea was that industrial capitalism was going to evolve into socialism. Well, it didn't evolve into socialism in the West, uh, but it did uh, uh, lead to a revolution and socialism uh, in China, and now that it, uh, possibly spreading to uh, it, uh, the rest of Asia. So uh, you can you can you have that as a modern example. You have uh, Bronze Age uh, finance as uh, uh, another example, and uh, there's certainly enough so that you can see that this doctrinaire. Uh, propaganda that economic students are taught, are taught about how the private sector is always good and government interference is always bad, especially when it supports the 99% and uh, increases transactions costs. Uh, well, uh, you have two roads before you, and uh, we have to make it clear uh, where each of these roads are leading. Mm-hmm. Um, so... <laughs> Going back to the um, to the system of the Sumerians and the and the Babylonians, they, they really we have this sort of myth that for, for five thousand years gold has been the basis of the money system, or gold has been money. But that wasn't really true. It was really an accounting system. And well, I think the first time you begin to find gold is in the the royal tombs of Ur, and gold was sort of like the nouveau riche. Uh, uh, invaded military invaders like gold. Uh, gold was always the uh, uh, military, the medal of military conquest. Uh, until really the 20th century, most of the world was on a silver standard. Uh, but silver was all provided by the government, and the exchange rate of silver, the monetary value of silver, was always set by government. And also, because silver was the basis of the credit system, Ever since the very first uh, uh, interest rates are documented, they were all stable. For century after century, you have the same interest rate. Interest rates were always regulated by government, and they still are. There's never been a free market setting of interest rates in any society. Uh, So uh, it's amazing to see how the textbooks describe how a parallel universe would work if there weren't any government. And if, if uh, the private sector suddenly automatically created a world in balance where everybody was happy. Well, this is a, why would anybody read this kind of science fiction that's so uh, obviously uh, at odds with the fact that the role of government is to keep the wealthy in the private sector in check, to prevent the financial class, the landlord class, the monopolists from taking over the uh, society and uh, taking over government and running the economy for themselves instead of for the population at large. Uh, uh, You really need an alternative view uh, to economics. 
because the economics discipline today no longer talks about economic history. It no longer uh, talks about economic uh, the history of economic thought. It's it's all sort of very technical mathematics and uh, kind of junk economics. That's what my book J is for junk economics uh, mm -hmm. is all about. Uh, so you need an alternative. And what are you going to call it? Uh, I guess all you can call it is future futurism or future studies or futurology. Uh, but uh, I think economics now is uh, uh, almost a uh, right wing uh, religion and uh, doesn't belong in the social sciences. I think it belongs uh, in the uh, in, in the literature department is science fiction. Uh, and you need a new social science, just called future studies. Uh, you could call it sociology, but the University of Chicago has screwed up uh, sociology just as badly as it's done uh, for economics, making it all about status and the status quo. Uh, uh, anthropology uh, was an attempt to deal with what I'm dealing with, with Mesopotamia, but now that's uh, uh, anthropologists whom I know say it's all about underwater basket weaving now. So it's not really about how civilization developed. It's about tribal societies of the modern world that haven't developed. Uh, so you really need some kind of an, uh, a new discipline and a new name for it uh, that'll be independent, just like uh, in America after the Civil War. Uh, the government, uh, the Republicans came in and they said, look, we don't want to have uh, the prestige universities because they're teaching British uh, free trade theory, we're going to have to need a whole new set of universities to teach reality economics. And so we're, they created state universities, they created business schools, and they taught protectionist economics and uh, real world economics and real history uh, instead of the uh, kind of uh, Yale, Harvard, uh, 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 English, uh, Rontier uh, economics. Um, we have this whole movement now for to go local, to form little local communities, maybe have their own cryptocurrency. And I saw one commentator suggesting that if you had a cryptocurrency backed by commodities, for example, the farmers could basically back their cryptocurrency with corn futures or whatever. So you you could actually collect something with your cryptocurrency. You could turn it in in the future for some food. Um, but it seems to me, even if you have a bunch of little cryptocurrencies, you have to have some way to exchange, you know, to measure. It's like you said, it's a weights and measures thing. You've got to have a standard for measuring what your crypto is worth relative to some other community's crypto so that if you don't have whatever batteries in your community, you have to wait, uh, have a way to get them. So yeah. anyway, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, that's what my, you're saying. What money is all about, uh, and uh, the the uh, trying to uh, uh, pay by trading crops for something else. Now we're back in in the so-called barter stage. Uh, civilization didn't begin with barter, but it ended with barter. Uh, it began with a credit economy, then came a money economy. Money was to pay debts, and finally, when the, when the uh, creditors took over, uh, the money economy collapsed uh, in Rome, and you had you sunk into a barter economy. So uh, the, I think what uh, the idea of paying in crops for batteries is uh, how to cope with uh, an economy that's falling into a dark age of barter and localized production. And that would be nice if uh, the world didn't fall into 
barter and localized production, but you may have to migrate to Asia in order to uh, uh, get into a uh, non-Mexico. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we've done a, you know, a pretty good hour's worth there. Um, so it's been great talking to you. Do you ha- have any further comments or? No, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I think I may have wandered a little too far from the center. Uh, but I'm sort of talked out for today. Okay. Well, <laughs> super talking to you. Um, I've been speaking with Michael Hudson who has his latest book is called, uh, or it's the, sorry, it's the third edition of his original blockbuster, Super Imperialism, How America Rules the World. And his website is michael-hudson.com. Oh, I should add that uh, I do have another book coming out in three months. Uh, we, we just finished making the index, uh, The Destiny of Civilization. And these are my uh, China lectures. Uh, that I've been giving for the last few years. In China, the circulation is 250,000 viewers per lecture. So it's very popular there. And I was asked basically the same question you asked. How do we go on a different path? All, all your questions will be answered in the destiny of civilization. Okay, great. <laughs> all right. I look forward to it. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Ellen. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown.